Hey guys, welcome back. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Our goal here is to help you think about and engage with culture in a God-honoring way. And one of, the, one of the cool things about cultural analysis is that nothing is out of bounds as a topic of study. As we've said here before, uh, culture is the public manifestation of a society's most cherished beliefs. Or culture is religion externalized. And those beliefs are reflected in our laws, in our education systems, in our economy, in our entertainment, our architecture, and everywhere else. One of the major, but uh, one of the sometimes overlooked areas of cultural analysis is the realm of sports. And Jeff Ventrella is my guest this Super Bowl week. Jeff's the fellow for jurisprudence and political thought here at the EICC. He's the senior vice president of strategic training with the Alliance Defending Freedom. And if you've ever met or heard from Jeff before, uh, you know that he's a keen cultural observer. And today he's talking as a sports fan. We're going to talk about competition and scarcity, about hooliganism, celebrity athletes, Christian athletes, and the biblical position on sports. A, lo- a lot of people know that, uh, Jeff, you've got a resume as a theologian, uh, as a legal professional, as a parent, but just realizing that one thing that's common to all these roles and everything else that you do is the attention that you pay, that you pay to cultural movements uh, in light of the unchanging Word of God. And uh, I was just sort of reflecting on where we are in the calendar and looking at uh, much of North America getting ready for Super Bowl Sunday this week. Um, I just wanted to connect with you about uh, about sports. Uh, sure. Sorry, I can't offer you a beer, but uh, <laughs> um, I, w- I was thinking of uh, just trying to give this dir- give this conversation some direction. You know, instead of just yelling about Tom Brady, um, maybe we can just get back to uh, get back to the beginning and talk about sports at the level of created reality, like. As individuals, like as creatures created to be in community with others, uh, what what role does sports and athletic accomplishment play in how we live as image bearers of God? That's a great question, uh, Ryan, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to kind of share my thinking. Um, one of the key aspects, and you hit on it, is that is this notion of created reality, and that tells us a number of things, particularly. After the fall and in view of redemption, there is scarcity. Uh, scarcity requires collaborative behavior. And even without uh, the fall, we see in the Testament of Genesis that uh, there was no gold in the Garden of Eden. And yet, subsequently, we see God requiring his uh, people to uh, uh, become ornate and skilled with gold later on in the temple which presupposes they'd have to learn how to find it. Right. And since it wasn't in the area of the Garden of Eden, it presupposes they would have to engage in trade and to deal and develop and so forth. So what sports does is, I think, twofold. One, it, it is a strong buffer against Gnosticism. It says that our created embodied reality means something, that it is good. That is affirming. And the second thing it does is that it animates uh, competition, that is to say scarcity. It it is a way of animating that, of illustrating that. And with respect to team sports, 
or even individual sports where there's coaching involved, it requires that collaborative societal effort. So I think in that sense, sports is is consistent with um, what we're called to do as embodied uh, persons in God's reality. Now, of course, sin is ever-present with us, and uh, it can make these things uh, go off the rails. One of the things we've seen really since the advent of in modernity and then um, subsequently with the Industrial Revolution is that sports have become, quote, professional, quote. Right. That is mm-hmm. to say they've become increasingly a, an end instead of a means. In, in Christendom and even in the West prior to Christendom, sports were designed to be uh, uh, means. Uh, that there was value in of themselves, but they were designed to serve greater values, whether in the Greek times it was a form of beauty, uh, whether in the Christian times a form of discipline, uh, whether in the uh, Victorian times a form of uh, developing camaraderie and excellence, uh, those things would then be deemed to serve the greater good and so forth. Uh, What we're seeing now is kind of, uh, interestingly enough, a devolution, and uh, professional athletics is viewed as an end. You've arrived. You've made the National Football League, Major League Baseball, NBA, uh, Major League Soccer, all those kinds of things, you know, the various leagues and so on and so forth. So that tells us that good goods become bad gods. (laughs) I like that. uh, Yeah. Uh, we can elevate things uh, to the form of idolatry. And that's, of course, our bent, to uh, make things that are good into things that uh, should be God. Uh, so we do it that way. So that's, that's kind of, I think, from a created order, how I think of those things. Yeah, I like that. Um, the, the thing that you started off with really intrigued me. I had never, I had never thought about uh, the idea of scarcity uh, when it comes to sports and competition. Uh, and as I, as I look around and as I've got kids starting in, uh, you know, house league and city league sports, uh, we, there's a lot, a lot of children's leagues these days, uh, and even some, some school leagues are, have bought into this, this whole philosophy, like a no win, no loss, no competition kind of policy. Like you're going out there and you're not even keeping score. Uh, what is, uh. What is, what's up with that phenomenon? Well, my view of that would be that we're seeing a, uh, a leavening, a cultural leavening of the, the well, of the, the sign of the times. We're seeing that the patterns that are having sway in the culture are, of course, invading sports. So uh, one of those uh, types uh, of times is egalitarianism. Well, how does that express itself in sport? Well, equal playing time for every child, participation trophies for every child, the notions of an abstract notion of fairness and equality. For example, we had in the National Football League two overtime games for the league championships, the conference championships, Mm -hmm. and people were bickering about the overtime rules, saying it wasn't fair. There wasn't an opportunity to uh, have to try to uh, combat the person who's the team who scored first. Right. Uh, that there should have been equal number of possessions, 
so on and so forth. That is a spirit of egalitarianism. It's not a spirit of competition. Uh, certainly the rules are applied objectively and neutrally, but the notion that we must uh, demolish hierarchies, that everyone has to be, quote, equal, quote, in order for fairness and justice to prevail, is not really a Christian-affirming notion, uh, and yet we're seeing that invade uh, the sports uh, with respect to that. And, of course, it's now influencing youth sports. Instead of training people, not that winning, you know, Vince Lombardi famously said, uh, winning's not everything, it's the only thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's reductionistic, but there is a grain of truth to saying, look, the whole point of keeping score is to find out who's the better team or the better person on that day. Now, right. if, we get our identity, if we get our identity from that, if we think that we're better uh, humanly speaking or, or something along those lines, that's just mistaken. But if we take those things away, uh, I think we are missing part of what it means uh, to reflect being image bearers of Christ. Christ is the victorious one. Christ has dominion. He is the ultimate. And so when we uh, mirror that in our cultural activities, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that, a, for example, a BMW or a Mercedes or a Lexus or an, you know, an Aston Martin is, is, a, is a great car. It's a good thing we differentiate those kinds of things. Again, we can imbue it with too much importance, but that doesn't argue for eliminating the notion of ranking and hierarchy and so on and so forth. And it's, as a footnote, from a socio-legal standpoint, it's very interesting to me that these people who are so opposed to distinctions and binaries, uh, yet they always maintain ruthlessly the distinction between the rulers and those who may rule. They never want to give up that hierarchy. Maybe to get at, uh, at the simil- a similar question, get at the same issue from another perspective, um, we, we do have, we do live in an era where we've commercialized pro sports uh, into a, a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry. Um, so that, uh, like, obviously the, the pitfalls are, are pretty apparent when it comes to idolizing achievement, idolizing athletes. Um, but what, uh, what, what does the whole, this whole realm of professional sports uh, at the cultural level tell us? I think, I think it tells us things that are both positive and negative. I think it reflects, uh, again, that we have the work of the law written on our heart in this sense. People are desirous of clarity in terms of ethics, in terms of rules. Now, they may not want to live their own lives that way, but the fact that they can complain about someone got gypped or this was great or, you know, the rule was enforced or the rule was violated or the rule was arbitrary really manifests and testifies to that there is an objective standard uh, in the world at operation in our very hearts. And so we want winners. We want losers. We want to have something played out according to external rules. That is a real testament to we're made in the very image and likeness of the divine lawgiver, God. Now, on the downside of that, we have people giving themselves over to these things. So professional sports, Uh, has people that, what do they do? They identify themselves with the people playing. 
They wear the swag, the what do you call it, the swag. They make sure that they're on their their social media as being this person. They speak in terms of the possessive, my team, we did this. Uh, that's getting a little too close for comfort. That's beginning to show that people are living vicariously. And that would be a non-Christian response to professional athleticism. It's one thing to observe and to cheer and to help in that way, but it's quite another to vest everything you have uh, with respect to that, to live vicariously. Uh, that's a very different thing. We are called to live and work and work out our own salvation, not to base our uh, equanimity on what you know somebody did that we watched. So I think there's a danger there. No, absolutely, and um, this that, that leads really nicely into uh, into the uh, follow up question. Um, so there's a like obviously there's a there's a section of the population who, for whatever reason, they're just not interested in in sports, pro sports, or whatever. Uh, but there there's all there are also uh, hostile voices. Like, there are also people who see pro sports as a negative influence on culture, and uh, I think. Uh, Noam Chomsky is pretty famous for his uh, his criticism of professional sports. Um, he talks about it as like building up irrational attitudes of submission to authority, of examples of groupthink and jingoism. Uh, is is he is he onto something, or what? Where where is this where is this negative attitude coming from towards towards sports? I suspect that jingoism and blind submission to authority can occur uh, with respect to just about any cultural phenomenon. I wouldn't say that sports per se is a triggering or animating factor with respect to that. But, but you're right. There is a hostility. I think some of it's well-suited. For example, when people say this is out of balance, so the question becomes one of emphasis. You like sports, but you like it too much. Uh, it's dominating uh, your mindset. It's dominating your equanimity. It's causing you to uh, get rid of the weightier matters of the law, so to speak, in terms of our duties and responsibilities. Uh, it, it is, it's orienting the rhythms of our life. You know, we used to be oriented in Christendom around the church calendar to remind us of those things which are ultimate. Now we have people... Uh, even with things like uh, recording devices, oh, I can't go to this church service. It's an early start game. I've got to go the night before, or I can't go at all. Or So we're beginning to orient our life around the rhythm of the various sports seasons. That, to me, is not liberation. That, to me, is a road to enslavement. And uh, bread and circuses always do that. It's been true since the Roman times, that entertainment, our ability to be uh, subverted by entertainment actually is an enslaving and controlling device. Uh, now, Chomsky, of course, uh, is not a Christian. He's a man of the left. That's right. He's a, a brilliant man. But he, I think that given his bent on things and his view, his uh, work in linguistics, I think he understands that the power of language and groupthink and, or nudging, like Cass Sunstein would say, I think that's right, um, and he may also be pointing toward, and I don't know this because I don't know the context of the quote when he first made it, but you look at some of the uh, football or what we would call soccer in the United States, 
uh, behavior of the spectators in Europe in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is not good humanity. That is base humanity at that point. Although, interestingly, if you look at, say, rugby in the U.K., uh, Scotland, uh, uh, South Africa, the rugby spectators are very well behaved. It's very interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. It, there's a, uh, a, ki a kind of counter, counter question to that is um, the whole, this whole mentality, this whole industry that's been built up around sports has had probably the obvious, probably the inevitable result of making uh, sport, sports heroes, sports, uh, yeah, I don't know, sports heroes, sports stars into celebrities. Um, and this, like, this is just, like, I, from, from a cultural perspective, like, these are mostly young people without a whole lot of lived experience outside of this very specified realm uh, and it just, it seems like, it seems like a dangerous kind of, kind of move to make too much of a hero out of these, out of these, these figures. I, I completely agree with that observation. And unfortunately, uh, pockets of evangelicalism have jumped on board. Uh, they have saw that, they've seen that a number of uh, athletes have a huge platform and some of them. Uh, may profess to be uh, Christians, and so immediately they want these people to begin holding court with respect to the faith, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and all these yeah. kinds of things. Uh, the problem is, is, as you alluded and intimated, these are not very mature people, and without questioning the sincerity of the faith or even the type of of the depth of that faith, we ought to be wise in, in how we do that. We had a situation here recently where a, a former uh, uh, most valuable player of a, of a World Series, uh, well-known uh, in Christian circles on the covers of various, you know, Christian magazines and this and that, was just arrested for molestation of like, you know, four- and six-year-olds. That's right. Well, that's a problem. Yeah. And not, not that that Christians are immune to sin, but the problem is imbuing these largely very immature and typically very shallow-based uh, faith and making them the gold standard for all things uh, Christian or spiritual or so forth. And it usually reflects a distorted view of, uh, of Christianity. Um, give you another example. Uh, there's a, a current coach in the National Football League who prior to being a coach was the president of a uh, reform seminary. Well, okay, um, at some point to be a president of the reform seminary, this person would have to subscribe to the Westminster Standards. And those Westminster Standards have some particular things to say about the Lord's Day and the Christian Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, it, without going as to, you know, are we going to be continental or are we going to be Puritan or whatever, the fact is, how does someone who took an oath and a vow with respect to those standards as applicable to the fourth commandment all of a sudden say, oh, no big deal. You know, I'm, I, I can okay if I help employ people and actually work on the Lord's Day. Um, this, this, I think, is, is compromise that comes from the lack of clarity of thought on these kinds of issues.
Mm-hmm. No, totally. So, uh, Jeff, what uh, what would it look like um, to be a consistent Christian witness in sports? So, like, when, like, when, it, whatever you do, like, we're still we're still reformed here. We still believe that God is sovereign and uh, is taking is redeeming every sphere of life. Um, so, like, wh- when a Christian athlete stands before God at the final judgment. What would their athletic life have to have looked like um, in order for God to say, you know, well done, good and faithful servant? Yeah, I think we can derive some answers to that from the fact that Paul uses these uh, sporting uh, endeavors uh, by way of analogy to the faith itself. He talks about, you know, boxing and pugilistic things, how that disciplines his body, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. He talks about running a race, running a race so as to win. And so I think that uh, one aspect would be um, training hard and, and, and living that life, being a, a very uh, ferocious and yet fair competitor. Uh, the line in the movie uh, Chariots of Fire is interesting. With the first heading of Harold Abrams and um, Eric Liddell, Liddell seen coming over to him, being out front. They know there's tension there. They know they're going to be in competition. He introduces himself, greets him in an appropriate cultural way with a handshake, and then says, you know, I wish you the best for success, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is different from saying, may the best man win, and it's different from saying, good luck. Um, neither of those really tells the Christian story, but best wishes for success is other-oriented, it's sincere, and yet then you go about your business. So I think the answer in part lies with being that person who realized that uh, just like politics is not ultimate, athletics is not ultimate, but that doesn't mean it's unimportant or can't be done with excellence, and because the goal is to win in a competitive way, to win not at every cost, but to do all that you can do to demonstrate uh, those virtues, courage, bravery, you know, you know, those kinds of things that go into a well-formed person that ultimately reflect back on who Christ is. You know, Christ was our advocate. He didn't, uh, he wasn't wimpy when he was doing his advocacy work. He played for keeps. He was engaged. He was efficient. He was effective as an advocate. Well, I think in the same way, when we're advocating for things, in the public sphere or otherwise, and thus more uh, incarnating our advocacy in athletic competition, we ought to be engaged, efficient, and effective. It's okay to want to win. It's not okay to want to win at the cost of everything or too much. And then I think also um, the notion of how you display what's going on. I am content in all circumstances, Paul said. Mm -hmm. And so contentment... um, will arise uh, when winning, losing, or being injured, or suffering, cat- suffering catastrophic unfairness, all those kinds of things, I think that we need to incarnate the fruit of the Spirit. And those kinds of things will manifest themselves that this person is different in how they respond to those things. They're not out there with potty mouth. They're not out there trash-talking. I mean, sometimes trash-talking is part of the game. I understand that. Uh, but there's a way to do that in a way that I think is, is, would be appropriate 
Uh, for example, Eric Liddell, again, uh, is, is said to have said when he was there introducing himself to the competitors and said, well, I don't suppose I'll see you until after the race. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's, that's a great line. I love that. That's a great line. You know, and I think that's within the spirit of doing your best. You know, if he happens to win, okay, great. If he doesn't, okay. He's not going to be all bent out of the shape of that. So it's, it's, not, it's holding those things importantly but still loosely. So, I mean, I'm sure there's much more, and I can be much more articulate with some more thought on that. But um, I think it's absolutely inappropriate. Even professional athletics is an, is an appropriate, as uh, long as I think you're keeping the other mandates all of God with respect to how you're doing. But I think developing that respect, that character, that appropriateness uh, really does matter. And, and I'll go on to another point, but it's interesting how uh, very successful programs, there's always a group of people that despise them. So um, I think it's generated by two things. One is it's a, frankly an, an almost an unconscious hatred for God. God is dominant. God does excellent in all that he does, and people don't like that there's something beyond them that do well. So people hate the Yankees franchise. People don't like Duke basketball. People dislike uh, the New England Patriots football success. Yeah, yeah. I think that's partly a subconscious or a subliminal despising of dynasties and dominance, which are God-reflected attributes uh, with respect to that. And I think also there's an egalitarian component here. Hey, let's just spread it around. Let's just have some other people do it. Well, why would that be important to do that? Isn't the ideal to produce the best and to repeat it? Again, you want to produce uh, motor vehicles that are outstanding, not everyone having the old Yugos or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This this doesn't really show up in uh, in other industries, you know, like other, uh, you know, we we hear about we're the we're, we're the best, you know, internet provider, or we're the like we make the best uh, the best vehicle, as you mentioned. Like you don't get that same kind of uh, kind of pushback or that that subliminal uh, hey, hatred, as you mentioned. That's right. That's right. And I think at some point what we're going to see is the seeping in of identity politics. Mm. I dislike you because, not just because because you win, but because you're the other. Now, rivalries, I understand all that sort of thing. We've got to be very careful when we're actually ascribing you know, hatred. Um, and let me just say, too, we, we are seeing culturally the influence. There's a rise in Nazism. We've talked about this. Yes. Ezra does a great job with respect to that. I would encourage the listeners, if they haven't subscribed to Jubilee, to do that, because these kinds of cultural apologetics are part and parcel of what we do. It's very important to, to stay current and to have sustained thought on these things. So podcasts, great, but you need to be reading uh, good, thoughtful, well-edited essays, and that's Jubilee. Here, here. But on this right, this rise of Gnosticism, let me just tell you that we are seeing over and over now major universities that are assembling e-sport teams. Say again? Are you aware? They're assembling what? E-sport e teams. Oh, In other words, yes. Yeah. Like video game yeah. teams. Yeah. Correct. Now, if that's not a hat tip to Gnosticism, a legitimation of Gnosticism and calling it athletics, it's unbelievable. 
Yeah. So one one thing one thing that we haven't even touched on, or you touched on it, but I didn't even uh, really think to bring it up, is all of all of these passages where Paul refers to uh, he uses athletic imagery. So can can you just comment uh, on what uh, what the Bible says directly about uh, about sports? Well, it certainly never condemns it. It presupposes the goodness of those kinds of games. Uh, and Paul then kind of does an internal analysis of it for uh, spiritual education, talking about run to win, run to have a crown. Um, those are prizes. And he's saying that incentives are good. And right. athletics is a very tangible way of putting incentives before people. So getting back to the children's leagues, if we just have participation trophies, we are actually working against the very design, the, the telos of, of humankind, that we are designed to respond to incentives. And, of course, Scripture is filled with incentives, uh, ethical incentives and so forth. But sports is one that he, he, he is, uh, particularly uses by way of analogy. Right. So I think that's very important. He talks also about the goodness of physicality when he says we buffet our bodies. He says physical exercise is of benefit. Now, spiritual exercises, so to speak, are of more benefit because you're dealing with the ultimate realities of things. But he does not dismiss. He just puts it in its proper form that exercise and all those sorts of things is good. I think there's another aspect lurking here, too, when he talks about we can uh, foul our bodies. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, contra-Gnosticism. Uh, so we ought to take care of our bodies. Now, he's not talking about, because he's already warned against, taste not, touch not, legalism. Right. We're, not, we're not there. But the point there is if someone is morbidly obese, for example, if someone is filling their bodies with, uh, though all food can be good, not all food uh, in the right portions <laughs> is good, uh, that tells us that we need to stop being so sedentary and to, in fact, enjoy that our bodies move and do things. This is another reason why worship uh, traditions that have physicality are more in tune. And I, I could be formal or it could be informal, but you see the postures of prayer, of kneeling or lifted arms and those sorts of things, clapping, dancing, those kinds of things appropriately contextualized, uh, actually are more about incarnating humans as they are designed rather than some Greek, Hellenic, Stoic sort of notion. So um, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, I think, is a welcome uh, truth that says, yeah, uh, taking care of my body, exercising it, those kinds of things are, are good things. Now, does uh, does taking care of the body does that does that extend to uh, to some of some of these more more recent and more intense or extreme sports like uh, like MMA? Well, I would say I think I'll get to that. Um, I thought you were going to say something like CrossFit, which has become its own sort of religion. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, let's uh, let's leave let's leave MMA and yeah. uh, let's hear about CrossFit. Well, all, all I know is it, this becomes, there's an old joke. It says uh, an, an atheist, a CrossFit guy, and a vegan come into a bar. 
how do you know? Because they all told you. Because they tell you. Yeah. Of, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it becomes a form of identity. It's not good enough to be in shape. It's like I'm in shape to do cross fitness. Uh, I think some of our listeners will know that a couple of my sons are Marine Corps officers or infantry officers. Mm-hmm. They're in fabulous shape. But they're in shape not for the purposes of being able to do exercise gains. They're in shape unto a mission, a calling. Mm-hmm. Well, CrossFit, it seems to me, is people that do this, A, it becomes their identity, and B, well, yeah, okay, they can, you know, have really low heartbeats and all that stuff, but they do it for purposes of competing in CrossFit. I think that's a misunderstanding of why we ought to be physically active. We ought to be physically active to be healthy and to be disciplined and to be able to then ambulate and enjoy the created order in a variety of ways, not simply to be stuck in a gym trying to make personal bests. So I, I think there's there's some idolatry going on, and that's, that's true of you know, whether you write books or you know, those kinds of things too, but I think that's a real problem uh, in our culture. I think it's very narcissistic. I think it's very self-oriented, and I think it's fed by a consumeristic uh, sort of notion. There's a parallel with with some of the fine arts, like anything anything that you're doing, you know, for its own sake. There's that uh, there's a strong temptation or strong, uh, easy tendency towards idolatry. No question. I mean, you think about it. You know, Beethoven firmly rejected a brilliant composer. You know, in many cases unsurpassed in some of his his work, mm-hmm. but you know, firm hater of God. Uh, rejecting the Christian tradition, really. And he's one of the leading persons that was, you know, art for art's sake, right. music for music's sake. Well, I don't think music is is 100% instrumental, and I'm using that philosophically, not as a musical term. I don't think that's the case either. I think there is beauty in music, and consequently a, looking at a beautiful sunset is not simply so it can get dark, but it's to have an awe moment and music does do that aesthetically so aesthetics are not simply oh so now we can have you know a song to do x y and z but by the same token your point's well taken we can slip right into arts for art's sake meaning that it ought to have nothing else to do with anything else and then all it becomes about the performer or the composer and that's that's a very dangerous place to be as well well what's uh you you want to go to MMA? Yeah, yeah. What's uh, what's what's the bridge there? I, I, I was I'm just now that you now that I brought it up now that you mentioned that you would get there. I wanna I wanna get there. Yeah, it's it's. Um, uh, I think some people know I studied martial arts for a number of years and, and all that sort of stuff. Martial arts have been with us nearly from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Cain and Abel were in. I don't know if it was an ambush or not, but there certainly was hand to hand things going on there in a very evil way at that point. Mm -hmm. And this notion of self-defense is biblically mandated in the law of the covenant. Uh, So uh, learning how one's body works, learning learning that in a fallen world, there's a necessity for protecting one's integrity, bodily integrity, and the integrity of others who are weak, who are vulnerable, those kinds of things restrain evil, uh, and martial arts is one mechanism uh, to assist that uh, in, in that broader ethical calling of, of self-defense. Well, uh, setting aside, you know, anything can go off the rails. We come now to uh, 
you know, you had, uh, you know, boxing became popular and, and rules were then imposed with respect to that. And then you had the martial arts East and West began to merge mm-hmm. and began to have things of MMA. MMA takes really away from the, you know, the mystical, this is a Far East way of life and expressive expression of Taoism or Buddhist monism and, and becomes, no, this is about kicking someone's butt, you know, kind yeah. of a deal. Yeah. So, so early on, and, and I was in the, for example, the UFC early on following it when it was, you know, no rules really, there are a lot of Christians involved in this thing. And, and to this day, there still are, although now you're getting a lot of braggadocio guys and all that sort of stuff. But how, how are we conceive of this? Uh, the former senator, now the late senator, John McCain, said this was the equivalent of human cockfighting. Well, that's a good rhetorical line. Is that true? Yeah. Is this like cockfighting or dog fighting? Um, I, I don't think so. I think that the dogs don't have a choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we are to be husbands of uh, animals and that sort of thing. Uh, the, and one of the things I heard early on in one of these matches why these people compete, and it was this. It was as real as it gets. And so I think this, again, it reflects a yearning for uh, what's true, good, and beautiful, perhaps in a distorted, uninformed way. But we live in such a virtual reality. We live where we can, you know, if you go on video games, you can slaughter people, hundreds of them, in a matter of minutes. I think that this is a reality check, that there's a yearning for this. Of that These are, I have to train hard. There's so much to know. There's so much to do. And this is as real as it gets short of war, uh, where it's a very different set of uh, trade-offs that occur. Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, there's a, there's a Christian underlying or at least uh, impetus to what's transpiring there. Now, is there abuses? Of course. Uh, I think one of the things I think is is unfortunate, uh, though I think women ought to be trained and understand and know how to uh, deal with unwanted advances or touching and that sort of stuff, I'm not a fan of the entire uh, female division of, of MMA. I think that uh, there's a lot of, of things that can go wrong there with respect to uh, being injured and uh, hurting uh, something that's unique to women, and that is the ability to be mothers. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a real issue there biologically that we need to account for. We haven't. And I think that shows a consumeristic mentality that, hey, I can make more money this way, and, you know, let's have these ladies roll around and, you know, punch each other. Well, yeah, I don't think that's a good development with respect to that. That's not to say that women aren't to be involved athletically, whether that's in the ballet or distance running or sprinting or gymnastics or martial arts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I teach my young daughter just some fundamental self-defense joint locks and how to cast off things and so forth because good. I don't want some cretin touching her in a way that she's A, panic and B can't get out of it in, in a way that makes sense so she can get help and distance herself. So that's not a knock on martial arts per se, or shall we say self-defense training, 
But NMA for women, I think, is a different calculus, and I think we need to think about that. But I don't think it's a per se wrong, wrong thing to pursue. I think there is uh, things to be learned with respect to that. And in this world that is so virtual and non-real, I think someone getting their bell rung um, and they understand that, I think, is a way of building respect. It's a way of understanding the reality of, of what we're capable of, and it gives them a little taste of, of uh, man, uh, self-control. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, a, uh, there's a, uh, a, a tale that's told, you know, where do you want to, if you're in a strange city, where do you want to go work out? You ever heard this? No, no. Okay, where, where do you want to work? And I heard this from an ex-CIA guy who traveled a lot. He says, the place to go work out is find the gym that has the most ex-convicts who go to it. Now, why is that? Well, his reasoning goes like this. When these guys uh, are in prison, you know, you, you, you mess around, you cut in, you make fun of some, you look weird, you make a snide comment, you drop a thing, you get your head split open. Yeah. Because there's this self-enforcement mechanism. These guys... It doesn't matter to them. They're gonna. It's going down. Yeah. yeah. They know what's going to happen. You step out of line, you're going to get your rear end kicked or worse. Mm-hmm. So when these guys get out, they've been in the slammer for three years, five years, ten years. Um, they go to a gym, and guess what? Everyone's well-behaved because the ethos of self-control and discipline in that environment obtains. Contrast that with where you have the guys with the spandex and they're, I'm a, you know, oh, you know, hey, I, I need, to, I need to pass through. This is my, hey, this is my rotation. Hey, I need to do some reps. Hey, spot for me. Yeah. Those yeah. guys have never had their butts kicked and they're just rude. They're self-focused and narcissistic. They've never had the discipline of a community come upon them. So I suggest, and it's just a suggestion, but, but, but that that is another benefit of. Uh, mixed martial arts is if you've been where you've had to deal with, you know, a guy who is as strong or more strong than you, who's trained as you, and you've had to persevere and endure, and you may have gotten knocked down or you may have submitted them, whatever, you learn self-control and discipline and respect. And frankly, those are the people when they get out in society, unless they're, you know, roided up or something that have no self-control, they're the ones that are going to be, frankly, be more restrained than the ruffian in the bar that has, you know, three pints of liquid courage and is trying to be a tough guy. Right. Yeah. So I yeah. think there's a benefit there. No, that's uh, that's an interesting thought. I think that's well said. Um, yeah, Jeff, I really appreciate your time. Is there, is there anything else that uh, that we should be mindful of with this uh, this question of sports and culture? No, I think just be mindful. I mean, I have some thoughts rooted in creation and some scripture, but uh, some of these things are tentative. So I hope our listeners don't uh, extract something out of context. Um, But um, I think we do need to have careful reflection and not have a precipitous flush mentality, either I'm all for X or I'm totally against X, without having some reasoned discourse and seeing the good. We're in a fallen world. Uh, but we're in a redeemed world. And the question is, if it's not per se wrong activity, like I, there are people that say, hey, you know, open marriage is good because you can learn to love different ways. Well, no, that's just sin. It's wrong. Yes. So yes. that, that activity is per se evil. But I don't think most athletics are per se evil. I, 
I was in the Yucatan Peninsula a number of years ago and, and got to see a, a, a really a kind of a primordial soccer uh, field where they, they have to, to kick the ball through a ring that's elevated, I don't know, maybe 15 or meters above the, the thing, you know, pretty amazing sort of athleticism. And they had these great competitions among the uh, Aztecs and the Toltecs kind of things. Well, oh, yeah. I've, I've seen I've seen something like that. That that's really cool. It, well, get this: if you win, if your team wins, the privilege of winning is you get to celebrate, and then the captain is sacrificed. Oh, the most emulating god. Yeah, that's less cool. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, you see a lot of tanking going on in that situation, I suppose. <laughs> that's their own. But. All that to say is that, you know, the point being that, that in their worldview, um, sacrifice to the gods is a high thing. Mm-hmm. Now, we're called, we're called to do what? We're called to sacrifice as well with our bodies. That's right. Living sacrifices. Well, how, how, how can we not do that athletically? Athletics is part of that. No, Absolutely. Jeff, really appreciate your time. Uh, before I let you go, what's your favorite sport? Well, it, it's pretty simple. It's baseball. Nice. Correct. Yep. I, I don't get to see it much anymore. I mean, it just takes time, and I've kind of lost track. I've been a Baltimore Orioles fan since 1966. They have been dreadful, particularly last year. They were massively dreadful. But you know what? That's the beauty about sports. You can be loyal. You can be a bandwagon guy, or you can be loyal. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, there we are. <laughs> I enjoy martial arts. Still like watching it. I understand it. You know, I've done it. So I, that's always kind of fun uh, for me. And I have to uh, admit, not confess, but admit that uh, when there's a, a good uh, ranking of uh, bouts at the highest levels, not the some of the levels are just dreadful and they shouldn't be happening. It's really dangerous for the competitors. But at the UFC level, uh, most of those are pretty good. And I will find myself uh, tuning in on occasion very cool thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the ezra institute for contemporary christianity please take a moment to like share and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform for more resources please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca